Hello, and welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Yasas, Kalos Irthates do Harrisburg Adelfuse Cristo, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church, sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now, here's this week's sermon. I hope that it speaks to your heart. Today, I am finishing up the Ten Commandments. And so, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read you Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, or his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We live in a world that encourages us to covet, to lust after things and power and fame, or someone else's spouse, or someone else's abilities, or someone else's house, or car, or looks. Western economies are based on making us covetous. They can sell us things if they make us need things we don't need, or lust for things that are not necessary to real living. The things we lust after so easily often take over our hearts. One writer made a list of things that we covet in the battle for our souls, based on things he'd heard people say. See if this sounds familiar. I think about money a lot, as in getting more of it. I fantasize about winning the lottery or hitting, coming into a big inheritance or hitting it big on the stock market. I have a mental list of the things I'd like to buy if only I had the money. I wish I had more power and control over others. It seems as if my spouse and kids don't respect me. Ditto at work. People respect power. I told Hank when he first, I said, watch out for people that want power. They're the last people that need it. I've, I've missed important family events in order to pursue my career. I justify it by telling myself and my family that this is what it takes to provide for them. I tell myself that someday I will relax and spend time with them. Aside from my family and others I love, there are things in my life that if they were lost or destroyed, it would crush me. It would devastate me. If my doctor told me I had to give up alcohol, cigarettes, red meat, salt, sodium, sugar, caffeine, because it was seriously putting my health at risk, I would find it difficult to the point of being impossible. I likely would not tell anyone in order to avoid accountability, although there's nothing wrong with sugar and caffeine. If you ask my family what was most important to me, they would likely refer to my job or my favorite hobby or making money. If you ask them what was most important to me, they probably would not say it's them or God. I love God and I want more closely to follow him, but there is one thing that always seems to get in the way and it's blank. 
and you fill in the blank. The things we covet try to take over our souls. These are signs of a heart that covets something, a heart that at times is willing to sacrifice one's soul for something. That's the danger of what you covet. By the way, the lust for all things technologically new is one of the worst things we covet for. As you buy that new cutting-edge iPad or smartphone or laptop, guess what? That same company that is selling it to you now is planning to make it obsolete in three more months so they can sell you 2.0 of it or 3.0 of it at a higher price. And they'll try to convince you that you need this newest cutting-edge doodad. If we believe Madison Avenue, we will never have a moment's satisfaction in our lives because Madison Avenue's mantra is, you need more, 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 you need more. And this is often compounded by the American sense of entitlement. We deserve the newest, the best, the latest. Paul David Tripp was visiting uh, with a church leader from India who had come to the States to study. And in the midst of their conversation, Paul asked the man what he thought of Americans, to which his guest responded in a polite but direct way. Do you want me to be honest, he said. Yes, I do, Paul responded. You Americans have no idea how much you have, and yet you always complain. What do you do with such ingratitude? Folks, it is not wrong to have things but it is wrong when things have you. A big part of coveting comes, by the way, from comparison. One major source of discontent that leads to coveting comes when we resent God's goodness in someone else's life and ignore God's goodness in our life. That, that's backwards. The problem of comparing ourselves to others and competing with them is as old as Cain and Abel, which led to the first murder on this planet. Jesus battled with this problem all the time with his disciples. Who would be first? Who would sit at his right hand? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Remember after Jesus was resurrected, he met with Peter. And he told Peter about the kind of death he would die. And Peter's response surprised me. You would have thought, he said, Lord, give me the strength not to fail you again like I did in that garden with that girl. Or, Lord, help me to endure what I must endure and stay faithful. But what was, what was his response when Jesus told him how he was going to die? He looks at Jesus and goes, but what about John? What about, what, what's going to happen to John? What's he going to have to endure? And you know what Jesus said, don't you? He said, what is that to you? In other words, he said, what I'm going to do with John is none of your business, Peter. You're supposed to follow me, not compete with your brother John. You know, J Craig Greshel said years ago, he I think he had like six kids. He's a famous pastor. And so because he had so many kids and so many baby teeth falling out, he said the going rate for the tooth fairy at our house was an American dollar. But one day he said, my little Anna, who was seven at the time, and had just received a crisp dollar bill for a baby molar, came running to me, obviously upset. Daddy! Daddy! You're not going to believe this! You know how we get a dollar from the tooth fairy? My friend Kay said her tooth fairy brings her five dollars. 
My poor daughter was beside herself. She wondered aloud, Daddy, why, why, why? It just isn't fair. How come we only get a dollar when Kay gets five? He said, my mind raced to come up with an acceptable explanation. Fortunately, my little girl came to the rescue as she continued to think out loud. Daddy, maybe we can find out which tooth fairy they use and switch to theirs. <laughs> That's it. Fire the tooth fairy. Teeth should go to the highest bidder. Anna was perfectly happy with one dollar until she found out her friend had a better tooth fairy. Is that not the human condition? You want to be miserable? Compare and compete with everyone you know. And guess what you'll find? There will always be somebody smarter than you. There will always be somebody better looking than you. That's true of every person in here except one. And humility prevents me from going further. There will always be someone with more money, a nicer house, a better car, a better education. There will always be somebody more gifted. Comparing ourselves and competing with the rest of humanity absolutely guarantees you a life of misery. And our hearts will covet and continually be dissatisfied with what it doesn't have because there will always be people who have something you don't have. If you aren't happy with what God has given you, you ain't happy. By the way, there's an antidote to this comparison problem. There were two friends at one company, and they both were in the same department, and they both were competing for a, a promotion. And when one friend was promoted, the other friend who was a Christian actually did something that stunned the department. He threw a huge party to celebrate the good news for his friend who had got what he wanted for himself. He celebrated. He rejoiced for his friend's good fortune. He anti-coveted. Hallelujah. Dallas Willard wrote, If you want to really experience the flow of God's love as never before, the next time you are in a competitive situation, whether it's around work or relationships or whose kids are the highest achieving or looks or whatever, pray that the others around you will be more outstanding, more praised, and more used of God than yourself. Really pull for them and rejoice in their success. And Willard says this, if Christians were universally to do this for each other, the earth would soon be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. I agree. The earth would be shaken to its foundations. Imagine that. Christians rooting for each other. Churches cheering on other churches instead of being in perpetual competition with each other. We need to quit competing and start rejoicing when God blesses somebody else besides us. Hallelujah. We need to celebrate God's goodness in the lives of others. And one of the benefits is that the pain of envy and coveting will go away. The biggest antidote to covetousness, covet to, to that bad thing, is contentment. Contentment is being satisfied with what you have instead of being dissatisfied with what you don't have. And contentment is always based on gratitude. God has put so many blessings right in front of us, hasn't he? 
Look at what God has given us. As Christians, certain life has, certain death has been replaced by certain life. We have been saved. Our shame is swallowed by God's grace. Our sins blotted by his blood. Heaven is ours, and none of this is an accident. God has been quite intentional about blessing you. We have been given more than we can imagine. Life itself is a gift. Lungs that work are a gift. Eyes that see are a gift. Legs that walk are a gift. We ignore so much until it is lost to us. We don't think about our kidneys until we're sitting there at the dialysis machine, do we? We don't think about our ears until we have to spend $4,000 for a hearing aid. Amen? I didn't. What? <laughs> we are blessed and blessed again. And then bless some more. Hallelujah. And if we can't be grateful for what we have, then at least let's be grateful for what we have escaped. Matthew Henry, the 18th century Puritan preacher who wrote a Bible commentary that's still being printed 200 years later, was robbed while living in London. And upon reflection, and they found this in his diary, he thanked God for four things. He wrote, let me be thankful first because this is the first time I was ever robbed. Instead of looking at the time he was robbed, he looked at a lifetime of not being robbed. <laughs> and he said, second, I'm thankful because they took my purse and not my life. That's a good perspective. And third, he said, because despite the fact they took all my money, I'm poor and it wasn't much. Hallelujah. <laughs> and fourth, because I, it was I who was robbed and not I who did the robbing. We should never get over the grace of God. It should astound us, touch us, move us. Yet, we seem to get used to God's incredible generosity and begin to take it for granted after a while. Have you noticed? Do you remember when you first got saved? Remember the joy of having your past wiped away in an instant? All your sins under the blood of the Lamb? Remember the gratitude you felt for the gift that you didn't deserve in a million years? The gift of a relationship with God and of eternity with God and all that meant? Remember the joy of it. And then after a while, we all began to get used to such an incredible gift. The amazement began to ebb. The gift began to be ignored. The joy of salvation diminishes as it gets turned into just another piece of furniture in the room. You know, a lot of people think, well, what happened to the joy of my salvation? I'll tell you what happened. You quit being as grateful for it. And when gratitude goes, joy goes with it. And our gratitude, as a result, just becomes occasional, seasonal. Something, something we bring out at Thanksgiving. Oh, it's the, day, the one day of the year. We need to be grateful. Okay. I'm grateful for this big turkey I'm about to gluttonize on. <laughs> or Christmas. Or something extraordinary. Then we're grateful. And after a while, gratitude gets less and less and less. And we wonder what happened to joy. 
In Romans 1.21, Paul writes something I've never heard anyone preach in a sermon in all my years. And yet I think it is one of the most important things Paul wrote. Let me read it to you. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thanking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you hear what Paul just said there? Every sin that came out of the darkness started with one thing. It started with ingratitude. What broke the world, according to Paul? Ingratitude that led to warped thinking. Ingratitude turns out to be the fountainhead of all the evils in the world. You know, when the ancient Christian fathers put together the seven deadly sins, they said that greed and envy and lust and hate, all of that comes from one big sin, and that one big sin is pride. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the first big sin was not pride. What Paul says in Romans 1.21 is that before there was pride, there was ingratitude. Ingratitude was our first step in a journey away from God. Ingratitude created the fall of Adam and Eve. Ingratitude caused our separation from God. Do you see the progression? His goodness was ignored. And then it was rejected. And once it was rejected, out came pride and out came rebellion. But what started it was ingratitude. That should scare us all. Because what Paul is really saying here is that what brought down creation... And what is most dangerous to the human soul is not this sin or that sin. It's not even pride itself. The most dangerous thing to a human soul is ingratitude to God. How much trouble are you in this morning? Have you ever heard that the sin that broke the world was thanklessness to the one who gave us everything? It is the mother of all sins, according to Paul. And we, as a species, continue down that trail. Let me tell you a true story that happened on September the 7th, 1860, on a Friday night. There was a boat called the Lady Elgin that went into the waters of Lake Michigan to transport people from Chicago to Milwaukee. There were about 400 passengers on board. Around 2 or 3 in the morning, the ship shuddered because it was rammed by another ship, and the ship sank. For six hours, survivors floated on lifeboats and other bits of wreckage while lightning cracked across the sky. There was a storm going on, and the, the winds were furious, and the surf was awful, and it was driving the people who were in the, the, the ship toward a cliff near Evanston, Illinois, Local residents and farmers, waking up to the sound of wailing men and women scattered across the water, ran for help, trying to organize a rescue party for these 400 people. Among those recruited was Edward Spencer, a seminary student from nearby Northwestern University who had grown up along the Mississippi River and knew how to handle himself in the water. Tying a rope around his waist, he jumped off the cliff and into the choppy waters of Lake Michigan in that storm. And he pulled victim after victim to shore 
It kind of reminded me of, of the movie Hacksaw Ridge where he ties a rope around. He grabs people, and instead of going up, he grabs people and comes down with them. This guy was grabbing people and going up with them. The undertow was taking a terrible, terrible toll. And while lunging and heaving with one person after another under his arm, the sharp edges of floating debris hitting his body and his head, again and again he returned to that cliff with another survive, bringing another survivor. He was bloodied. He had aching muscles. And he would rest a little around a campfire, trying, you know, he was, he was losing body heat. And then he would spot another person thrashing away in the surf. And tossing off the blanket that was conserving his body temperature, he dove into the deeps again, his muscles cramping as he strained against the current. Eventually, of the 30 victims who survived along the water's edge in Evanston that day, only 30 survived out of 400. And of the 17, they were saved out of that 30 by Edward Spencer. That effort by Edward Spencer broke his body. He was never able to recover from the physical toll. He was forced to abandon his schooling, his livelihood. He wanted to be a pastor. He was never strong enough to be a pastor or a scholar. He was nearly paralyzed the rest of his life, often confined to a wheelchair, after he saved those 17 people that night. And though his valor would at times be recalled in newspaper accounts and general tributes, when asked by a reporter what he most recalled from the rescue, he replied this, and I quote, what do I recall from that night? Only this. Of the 17 people I saved, not one of them ever thanked me. Not one. This man gave his body. He risked his life. It changed his life forever. And not one person out of 17 thought enough to go back and say, thank you. That is part of the problem with the human condition, isn't it? Jesus had the same problem, by the way. Remember he healed ten lepers and only one came back? Leprosy was the scourge of its day. It was the incurable disease of its day. When a person had leprosy, they became a social outcast. It was incurable. And what they did, you know, often they, had, they were on the outcasts of society and slowly, slowly, slowly they, their bodies became deformed and they died early deaths, usually from infection. And Jesus healed ten of them. And only one came back. And remember what Jesus said? He said, there were ten healed. Where are the nine? And you can hear in his voice from across 2,000 years the pain and the amazement at the ingratitude of those nine lepers. And I believe Jesus still experiences the same thing now from millions of Christians. You see, here's our problem. You want to hear our problem? Gratitude is treated like it is optional by most Christians. But Paul tells us it is central to the Christian life. Everything in Christianity divorced from a thankful heart, it drains us, becomes a burden to us, it steals our joy. The lack of gratitude seldom seems to be the source of a lot of our problems. And yet, if we do not practice the discipline of gratitude, 
of literally counting our blessings daily and expressing our thankfulness to the God who gave those blessings, we begin to wither in our spirits. We, if we don't practice gratitude, become worried and preoccupied and driven and bitter and lifeless. Gratitude for most of us is down the list of spiritual priorities. But according to Paul, it should be at the top of the list of spiritual priorities. And then we wonder why our joy is gone and our heart is shrinking and we're just going through the motions. The first thing that kills a spiritual life is when you stop being thankful for what God has given you and is giving you. Gratitude must become a lifestyle, not this occasional emotional spasm. You see, most of us go, I'll, I'll be grateful when I feel grateful. That is not the way you do it. You are grateful because you choose to be grateful. You are grateful because you pay attention to God and what he gives. You are grateful because you have your eyes wide open. Gratitude and thanksgiving unleashes joy in this present time, in this present place, in this present moment. Rather, and, and if you do not be grateful in the present, you will be anxious about the future or trapped with regrets from the past. If we do not focus on God's goodness all around us now, we will inevitably focus on the opposite. We will be driven toward things that makes us anxious or angry or the things we will lust after and covet. If we do not fill our hearts with gratitude and love, they will be filled with other stuff, either idols or worry or regret. When we are grateful, the world looks different. As David said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know where he got joy? From remembering what God had done for him. For remembering God's faithfulness to him. For remembering all the blessings that had come to him. And when he remembered that, he got happy. And that happiness, that joy was his strength. Nancy DeMoss, several years ago, interviewed Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of you have heard of her. Johnny has lived her entire adult life as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair or in a bed due to a diving accident at age 17 when she dove head first into some place she shouldn't and it broke her neck and rendered her paralyzed from the neck down. For more than 40 years, Johnny has inspired countless people. And as DeMoss interviewed her on her radio show, she asked Johnny, how do you maintain such a joyful spirit with all the challenges you're forced to deal with on a daily basis? And with just the slightest pause, she said, you know, Nancy, I think I've just disciplined myself for so many years to give thanks in all things. That has become my reflex reaction. Do you notice what the Bible says? The Bible never says give thanks for all things. It says, give thanks to God working in all things. Of all the insights Johnny shared that day, the single that single statement penetrated my heart the most deeply. I realized that for years, more often than not, my reflexive reaction to difficult circumstances had been to whine rather than giving thanks as a discipline from the outset. That reaction of fretting, giving in to discouragement, and expressing negative thoughts about pressures and problems had become my default pattern. 
That day the Lord showed me my need to develop a new pattern of responding, one of giving thanks in all things. I can't say that I'm there yet, she says, but that is where I want to live. The grateful heart that springs forth in joy is not acquired in a moment, and it is not an emotion. It is the fruit of a thousand choices. It is a godly habit intentionally practiced. You want a godly habit? As a matter of fact, this comes from some of the great spiritual disciplines from the Jesuits. At the end of the day, count all the times God spared you for something, from something. Count all the times God blessed you with something and worship Him. If you, in the day like that, it's a choice. Gratitude is a choice. And she said, after a time, it becomes a new muscle in our spiritual makeup. Now, please hear me on this. It is not wrong to whine. Some of the best whining you'll ever hear is in Psalms. They were a bunch of whiners back then. But what it is wrong is when you whine forever. What is wrong is when all you do is whine. Again, the Psalms show us the way out. Remember when David is whining to God and complaining, oh, what, yeah. And suddenly he starts to remember. I remember when you delivered me. I remembered when you kept your word to me. I remember how you've blessed me. And then he starts rising up and he says, and now I remember what kind, how good you are and how your loving kindness is better than life. And I remember all the goodness of the Lord. And by the time he is done, he has gone from whining to worship. He has praised himself out of his depression. That is how you do it. It's, God says, bring everything, whine away. But don't stop there. You know, I'm amazed at Johnny, Erickson Tata. Why should Johnny be grateful for 40 years in a wheelchair? I'll tell you why. Because her life has been redeemed, every bit of it. And that her broken body still is inhabited by the Holy Spirit and is the temple of God Almighty. Hallelujah. Why should she be grateful? Because she has been given extraordinary gifts in that broken body. And an incredible influence with that broken body. And partly because of that broken body. She is grateful. Because God has used her as she was. Paralyzed in all to touch the lives of millions. Ask her, would you rather be healthy headed for hell like she was? Or would you rather be broken and infused with a power and a purpose and a love that has used her in ways beyond her imagining. Again, God didn't break her neck. But my goodness, what a redemption job he's done. Why be grateful? I'll tell you why every one of us should be grateful. Because even in the midst of evil, we are still surrounded by the goodness of God. And that goodness is greater than any evil that befalls us. Even in the midst of pain, we are still inundated by the love of Christ. Why be grateful in all things, not for all things? Because despite what befalls me, God will use anything in my life, everything in my life, and use it and me for good. Because that, despite the losses, 
The gains will always be greater than the losses if I cling to him. What I had been given and will be given will always far surpass what will be taken from me in this life. And for that I am eternally grateful every day. If you cling to Jesus, you cannot be defeated. And what really matters can never be taken from you. And you will grow richer and richer and richer. I am grateful for a God who makes all things work for his glory and all things he uses to make us like Jesus. I'm grateful that no matter what I lose in this world, I am wealthy, wealthy in Jesus. And when you are rich in Christ, guess what? It is very hard to covet after anything else. And if you can get a hold of this, you will have a joyous life. I promise you that most of us have lost our joy because we lost our gratitude. And if you don't practice gratitude, guess what? It doesn't matter how much money you make, how much education you accumulate, how big your home is, how long or short your life is. No matter how many of those things you get, you know what you will have at the you you know what you want at the end of the day? You want more. More. You will have a hunger that never stops and can never be satiated. Because if Jesus isn't enough, I have news. Nothing else will ever be enough either. You were made an infinite creature with infinite need. And the only answer to infinite need for an infinite creature is an infinite source, and his name is Jesus Christ. Nothing else will fill the cavern in your soul except the one who made the cavern and has the resources to fill the cavern. And for that, we can be eternally grateful. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. <laughs> We're going to take communion today. I'd like the servers to prepare themselves. Today we will take communion in the seats. We ask you to hold the elements until we all can partake of the communion together. And uh, if you are allergic to gluten products, as we pass the bread around, there will be little packets with gluten-free bread in there. Please take that. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven